0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.
1: I think we should we should get started I'd like to uh, I'd like to I'd like to welcome you to the to the uh, second in a series of four four debates about about how the the, the structure of, of inequality is changing as we move into the into the 21st century uh, this this series of debates is is hosted by the the just founded Center for the study of of Poverty and Inequality and is co-sponsored by CCRSE, by uh, IRIS, by the Stanford Center on Ethics, and the Ethics and Society program. What we'll be taking on today is the question of, of how the structure of racial and ethnic inequality is changing and, and what types of social policy might be, might be formulated or devised in, in, in reaction to those or in response to those changes. Uh, The the, the title for the the presentation today is Racial and Ethnic Inequality, Where Are We Going and and, and What Should Be Done. Now clearly that's a a pretty big question, uh, but I think sometimes as academics we we get sidetracked on the the little questions, and and this this series is all about forcing us to to take on the real important and profound questions of our our time. So let let me turn to to some introductions. I'm I'm David Grusky, and I'll be serving as, as moderator for this for this discussion, a, a spectacularly important role. Uh, and as for the discussants, uh, we have uh, first uh, Mary Waters, who's professor of, of sociology at, at, at Harvard University and uh, recipient of lots and lots of major research grants from, it seems, pretty much every big time foundation in the country. Uh, and also a recipient of lots of book awards for all of her many very influential books on, on race and ethnicity. In fact, she's received so many of these awards that that that, that I would think it, it really violates all sense of, of justice. <laughs> uh, we also have with us here today uh, Howard Winant, a professor of, of of sociology at UC Santa Barbara, and and. And author of major pathbreaking uh, analyses of racial formation of, of, of the rise of a new world racial order of race and, and, and globalization uh, in fact these 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 various works have been so influential that he's really that they've really become a fixture in the in the curricula of, 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 of uh, contemporary universities uh, both both in the United States and as best as, as best I can tell throughout throughout the world. Uh, what are we going to do today? Well, the structure is very simple. We'll lead off with with Mary Waters. who will give a twenty five minute presentation, followed then by by, by Howard Winant, and then uh, if the Spirit moves them, they'll they'll have brief responses to one another, and then we'll open up to uh, open up to questions from the floor. So we begin with Mary. Welcome.
0: Hey, um, thank you very much, uh, David, and for um, inviting me out here for this. Very beautiful campus and beautiful day, and I'm uh, happy to be here. Uh, As uh, David said, I think he he gave us an incredibly uh, wide topic to talk about, and I'm going to take my own particular slice through it, but um, hopefully we can have uh, an interesting discussion about all of this. Um, My argument uh, today is going to be uh, about immigration and how it complicates uh, racial and ethnic inequality and what that might mean for public policy uh, directions for the U.S. Um, And first what I want to just show you is that immigrants are changing the uh, demographics and the dynamics of racial change in the United States. Um, And I'm going to argue, since it's only 25 minutes without a lot of evidence, but I'm going to argue that um, new policies for immigrants should really focus on economic problems of the working poor, not issues associated with multiculturalism. Um, I'm also going to say that programs and institutions which are designed for native minorities are helping immigrants, that immigrants are very much um, uh, 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 using and profiting from and and, uh, their integration is being helped by programs like affirmative action, institutions that were set up during the civil rights um, uh, uh, movement in the 1960s. But um, that these race-based policies. Policies are increasingly precarious, partly because of immigrants coming to the United States. Um, I'm also going to argue that the situation of blacks is qualitatively different than other groups in the United States. And that new programs for black Americans should focus on racial justice and not just diversity. Um, So first, uh, I just wanted to point out that Americans have a very distorted view of racial and ethnic demographics. The General Social Survey asked um, Americans a question of what is the racial and ethnic breakdown of the U.S. Um, and this took out the people who were really wildly unmathematical, so who had percentages that 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 added up to over 200 percent. And it just basically were, used the people who were in the ballpark of 100 percent. So basically, most Americans vastly overestimate the numbers of blacks. Um, Hispanics and Asians and uh, American Indians in the U.S. and underestimate um, the percentage of white. So the actual percentage is about 70% white, uh, equal numbers of blacks and Hispanics, although I think Hispanics have, have overtaken blacks recently, about 4% Asian and less than 1% American Indian. Okay. Um, I probably don't even have to tell you this if you read a newspaper, but um, immigration is uh, changing America. There are estimated about 35 million immigrants in the United States, or about 12% of the population. Uh, 11 million are estimated to be undocumented, which is a steep rise in the 1990s and, and 2000s in the numbers of undocumented immigrants. Although, the number of undocumented immigrants is also a mystery to most Americans. 70% of Americans believe that most immigrants are illegal. Um, and uh, the reality is 30% of immigrants are undocumented. Yearly immigration is about 1 million, um, and the estimate is about 200 to 300,000 uh, illegal or undocumented people coming in. The top source countries, I'll just put those up for you in case you're, you're unaware of it, but um, uh, most of the source countries to the U.S. Uh, are from Latin America, um, uh, the Caribbean, um, Asia, and increasingly Africa is, is becoming a source country to the U.S. Um, and this is just another slice of that which is what are the, what's the national origin breakdown of the foreign born. And what you can see is that Mexicans are the largest foreign born group in the U.S. Um, and then followed by a variety of different countries um, from around the world. Um, Germany uh, is number 10 at 2%, Canada at 2%, but most are are, uh, bringing non-white immigrants into the U.S. Um, So in the U.S. right now, um, about 20% of the population are uh, are, uh, immigrants or the children of immigrants, um, what, what the Census Bureau calls foreign stock. And 75% of the foreign born are Asian or Latin American. So in the US right now, um, whites are 70% and these other groups, blacks and Hispanics are each uh, about 12 or 13% um, and American Indians and Asians are much smaller percentage. Now, if you look at um, the the, uh, breakdown of race and ethnicity by generation, YOU CAN SEE THAT EVEN AMONG AFRICAN-AMERICANS OR BLACK um, PEOPLE IN THE U.S., um, uh, ABOUT 10 PERCENT ARE FIRST OR SECOND GENERATION. Um, SO EVEN AFRICAN-AMERICANS ARE BEING IMPACTED A GREAT DEAL BY IMMIGRATION. THE HISPANIC POPULATION IS AN INTERESTING POPULATION. UP UNTIL um, the, THE 1970S AND IMMIGRATION came began again, um, the Hispanic population was an older uh, generationally speaking population and more like a native minority. It's now really a mixed population with some with uh, about a third being third generation and higher, um, about 40% being first generation, a little bit less being second generation. So it's a mixture of an immigrant group and a long standing native minority group. Uh, Asians are primarily immigrant. Um, And non-Hispanic whites are uh, impacted by immigration as well, uh, but uh, much less so than some of these other groups. So basically the point I want to make is that when we talk about racial and ethnic groups, the the minority groups we think of in the U.S., they are very much influenced by immigration. So they are a mix of immigrants um, and non-immigrants. Now the first point I want to make is that uh, not only are immigrants, a a large proportion of the native minorities that we have or or the minorities that we have in the U.S., but the projections about the size um, and the future of racial and ethnic minorities do not take into account the high intermarriage rates among immigrants and their children and grandchildren. And the intermarriage rates do grow higher with longer um, residence in the U.S. And I would argue that the government decision, which most people became aware of in the year 2000, to allow people to identify with more than one race, is um, a challenge to our racial statistics um, uh, gathering. And in fact, may end up being a fatal challenge to gathering that data. Um, This is just intermarriage rates uh, from uh, Barry Edmondson and, and Sharon Lee. You can see by the third generation majority of Asians are out marrying. Um, 57% of Hispanics are out marrying. Um, And uh, uh, the only group that has a higher out marriage rate in the first generation than in later generations are African Americans or blacks, black immigrants. So we can talk about that if anybody has a question about that. So with the 2000 census and the new ways we're collecting data, we have the six major single race categories, white, black, Asian, American Indian, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and some other race. And what this ends up being, once you start looking at the the combinations that exist, are six single race categories, 15 unique biracial combinations, 20 unique three-way combinations, I'll go through the whole thing, So you come to 63 unique racial combination categories. Hispanic is measured separately, so you take those 63, it yields 126 unique racial Hispanic categories. And so the Census Bureau is, is giving out data in this form where you have 63 racial categories, 28 Hispanic or Latino categories, 36 specific American Indian categories, et cetera. Now, there's a very few people in a lot of these categories, um, but the decision to gather and, and SELECT DATA uh, ALONG THESE LINES, I THINK, IS LEADING TO A COMPLEXITY THAT UNDERMINES SOME OF THE PUBLIC POLICY DECISIONS THAT WE MAKE AROUND RACE. Um, HERE'S JUST AN EXAMPLE OF THE KINDS OF of CATEGORIES THAT THE CENSUS BUREAU IS REPORTING. Um, OKAY. SO HIGH INTERMARRIAGE RATES MEAN MORE MIXED IDENTITIES, MORE REPORTING OF THIS MEANS A GREATER COMPLEXITY ABOUT WHO WE'RE ACTUALLY PROTECTING the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and affirmative action, et cetera. Um, the next point I want to make is that comes from my own research on second generation uh, young adults whose parents were immigrants in New York, and I think that, that other um, researchers are finding similar kinds of, of things, which uh, this is just telling you that in New York, some of those demographic uh, changes that I talked about for the nation are even more advanced. So that 55% of blacks in New York City are um, first or second generation. A majority of blacks in New York City are immigrants or their children. 97% of Asians and a majority of Hispanics. Um, And what we find in our study of young adult uh, children of immigrants is that overall the second generation is doing better than comparable native groups. Um, The Chinese are showing the most socioeconomic mobility, the Puerto Ricans the least. Um, And um, let me just uh, uh, show you a few examples of this in terms of education. You can see if you compare black uh, Americans, native-born black Americans, with West Indians, they have a much um, higher dropout rate. Puerto Ricans are doing worse than uh, Dominicans. Uh, CEPs are Colombians, Ecuadorians, and Peruvians. The Chinese are doing the best, uh, better than the Russian immigrants or the whites. Um, And in each case, uh, you can look at this for a BA, and it's just a flip, and this holds even when we control for a lot of background characteristics. Um, What we find is that the second generation, the children of immigrants are doing better than native minorities of the same large racial ethnic combination. And I think one of those reasons for that um, is that, um, one of the reasons for that is programs like Affirmative Action, um, some of the institutions in the city that were set up, um, uh, community college for instance, that was set up for Puerto Ricans that one of our ethnographers studied. um, All of the students in this um, uh, community college were Cuban, um, South American, uh, Dominican. And there were very, very few Puerto Ricans there. And I think that one of the statistical um, uh, results of immigration and the way we collect racial statistics is that we are missing some of the um, lack of mobility, some of the the, uh, bad outcomes among Native minorities, such as American-born blacks and Puerto Ricans, because statistically um, the children of immigrants and immigrants are included in those categories and they are actually doing better on average than the Native minorities. Okay, Um, so I want to talk about what these changes mean for future approaches to uh, public policies around both immigrants and race and ethnicity, and what I would argue is that um, uh, immigrants are uh, they're very varied in their, their um, characteristics, but immigrants are concentrated in low wage uh, jobs, especially um, Latin American immigrants have very low education, and they are affected by the declines the rise in inequality that I'm sure you're studying in this course, and the declines in the wages for the poorest workers. So without economic progress, I would say that is the greatest public policy issue facing immigrants, is what is happening to people at the lowest level of the wage distribution. It's an economic issue, I would argue not a cultural integration issue. Um, In the U.S., we tend to have an immigration policy which is all about who to let in, whether or not to have amnesty or deportation um, of uh, undocumented, as people read about in the newspaper. Um, And in fact, if we talk about integration of immigrants at all, people tend to focus on language, uh, which is a non-issue, basically, because if you look over um, uh, two generations to three generations, the United States is incredibly efficient at um, stamping out any foreign language that dares to enter uh, the US so that it's a complete non-issue to worry about language. But we don't don't have much of an immigrant integration policy in the US. What we do worry about is who comes in. Um, And in some ways that has worked because we have had economic mobility for um, poor workers who come in as immigrants. And they and their children in the past have had a lot of economic mobility and that has led to cultural integration. We haven't had to worry too much about that. Um, But one question is, will rising income inequality and declining fortunes for those at the bottom of the income distribution affect that way in which we integrate immigrants? Um, The other thing that is being debated right now and being marched about in the street are these ideas about what to do about undocumented immigrants. Um, And what I would argue is that denying full citizenship and participation to undocumented workers and their children would create a new permanent underclass. You only have to look at Europe and what Europe did with its immigrants to know that that's the wrong path to go down. Uh, Especially the legislation that um, Republican members of Congress keep trying to to introduce each year to um, deny birthright citizenship is, I think, one of the most dangerous things these guys are are, uh, proposing. Um, I think that what public policy needs to to have as its philosophical underpinning in terms of immigrants is equality and universal policies um, aimed at low-wage workers, not at immigrants per se, but wages, um, uh, policies around minimum wage, policies around protection for low-wage workers um, are the the policies that I think would be important for long-run immigrant integration. Um, The other question is what is happening with new immigrants and native minorities. And I would argue that I think that new immigrants um, are surpassing some elements of native minorities socioeconomically. I think affirmative action is increasingly a policy that ensures diversity in the nation's (coughs) institutions, which is quite good. Um, And it does that um, increasingly by um, reaching out to immigrants and their children. And uh, I think it's less and less effective for poor native minorities. Um, It's good for middle class native minorities. Um, So Douglas Massey and colleagues have published a book about um, uh, elite colleges and they find that 41% of black students at 28 selective colleges and universities nationwide are either immigrant or multiracial. So, in in concluding, what I would would argue is that racial minorities are not all alike, um, that African Americans experience discrimination and exclusion that is qualitatively different than experienced by other groups, um, and that policies to achieve racial justice for African Americans need to include um, universal policies for the poor and targeted policies specifically for poor blacks Um, and that uh, for other groups, um, like immigrants, we do not need um, policies that are racially defined. We need um, class-based policies. Um, And I think immigration-integration policies are a giant distraction um, and that economic justice is the best integration program we could come up with. Uh, I think we need to recognize that diversity, while it is a good thing and something that um, we would definitely uh, be a worse off society without is not the same thing as racial justice. Um, And we increasingly have slipped um, uh, from a a philosophical underpinning, I think, of racial justice to one of guaranteeing diversity. And I think we need to specifically recognize the specific debt that we owe to African Americans and the specific problems that they face, um, which I think are are different than other racial groups.
2: While we change mics. I just have to attach this to myself. Okay? Well, first of all, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, David Afrouz, for your work to arrange all this. Um, And uh, I have to say, as a parent of two uh, Stanford undergraduates, one already graduated, one still here. I feel, and as a, a former uh, Stanford student, myself, who dropped out, we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm particularly uh, thrilled to be on campus here. Um, so also, I, I want to acknowledge that uh, it's always a problem to uh, be on the program with Mary Waters, because um, if she goes first, she's sort of just taking care of everything, and there's uh, nothing else to say. On the other hand, if if the other person, in this case, I, go first, then, you know, Mary would have to set me straight later, and that would probably be even even worse. But uh, I don't think we exactly have debates. We have some debates, I guess, or some differences, but we're very much uh, in the same general ballpark or something like that, and um, we'll... uh, I think it's a p- productive discussion more than a debate. we will see what happens. Um, it's interesting that you know I'm, I'm coming here from having uh, just given a talk a couple of days ago at UCLA where I was asked to talk about the global future of race. And now we're sort of in the uh, domestic, uh, national future of race. And um, I'm having trouble, I guess I'm having some trouble keeping those two subjects apart uh entirely in my in my mind um what i want to do and i I don't have powerpoints you know sometimes i use that but i didn't prepare for today um what i want to do is talk about um three basic topics one uh the political implications of the demographic shifts that are going on racial demographic demographic shifts that are going on in the u.s this is again going to overlap a little bit with with mary Um, but over, in a general way, my focus is more political than policy, and that may be a useful thing to think about as well. Because to what extent is policy? I, I think it's totally valuable to get from you the uh, you know uh, any kind of prescriptive orientation towards well what should we do? And that's also what I think David has David has, has focused the course around. But, in some respects it's um while important to think about those things it's also a little bit utopian or idealistic to think that these enlightened policies are what drives or the the prospects of such enlightened policies drives uh the shifts that are going to happen around around race or almost anything else in this country, since we are talking about a conflict. Ridden, riven society, and therefore we should think about politics. That is politics driving those changes, which may or may overlap, or may go in very different directions. So, anyway, first thing: demographic shifts and their political implications. Second thing: colorblind ideology and its discontents. And the third thing is the um, racial identity of the U.S. state, the racial commitments of the U.S. state. Those are three things I'll, I'll try to talk about in my... I've already exhausted five of my 25 minutes here. We'll see how we go. Um, first of all, as... Uh, I'm not sure if Mary's data fully indicate how much the country is becoming a lot less white. Um, not that her data are wrong, but... Um, the, uh, if we project into the future, we go, I'm not a demographer myself, but I, you know, I, 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 you know, play one on TV, I I, I watch, you know, I try to watch that information, Um, we see that immigration and fertility rates are dramatically changing the rate, the racial composition of the United States. Now, this is, of course, regionally varying in all kinds of different ways. and it's, again, in some ways, it's a function of the world's uh, racial composition. The world's ra- ra- racial composition is um, basically pretty dark-skinned. Uh, those who we consider to be white people are less than one of the world's overall population. In the US, major regions uh, and cities are already ma- majority-minority regions. Uh, California became a majority-minority state in 2002. Uh, Other states as well, for example, New Mexico, are are such as well. Texas will be so by the time of the next U.S. Census, 2010. Arizona, New York, um, Nevada, New Jersey, Maryland are projected to become majority-minority by around 2025. And the whole country by sometime in the middle of the 21st century. Um, but the, it, it, it's also important to note that the uh, three uh, most significant cities in the United States, uh, New York, LA, and Chicago, are already ma- majority minority cities. Uh, the political implications of this on every level, in the public sphere and also in private life, this these transformations have major political implications. Voting behavior, in particular, is um, significantly divided along racial lines. Right now, the Republicans are the white people's party. There's a long history to this, um, particularly vis-a-vis black-white demarcations. Um, The Republicans were the Black People's Party for a long time, they were the party of Lincoln. Um, the Democrats were the party of Jim Crow and uh, segregation and the Dixiecrats. Um, but big swings, rapid swings are possible. And these are interesting shifts, because they happen uh, not you know off of a sort of a one variable, one uh, determinant kind of orientation. For example, um, In the 1930s, black voters moved to the Democrats in enormous numbers, even though the Democrats were still the party of the solid South and the um, Dixiecrats. Big literature on this. I'm just going to mention a couple of uh, people you might want to look at. Anita Weiss, Farewell to the Party of Lincoln. Ira Cassis-Nelson's new book, um, When Affirmative Action Was White. Um, Harvard Sitkoff, not... I don't like as much, quite uh, a new deal for blacks. Now, continuing this thing about voting behavior and race, since Prop 187 passed in California in 1994, this process has come, this process of differentialized racial voting has come to focus on Latino voting in particularly strong ways. Current wave of Latino protest activity Further further opens wedges in the Republican Party that 187 first created about a little more than 10 years ago. Um, Again, I'll give you a few quick cites. Robin Jacobson has a forthcoming book, Beyond the Border um, Collective Action, Citizenship, and Color in Prop 187, that's coming out. And also Kent Ono and John Sloop's book, Shifting Borders Rhetoric, I'm sorry, Rhetoric, Immigration and California's Proposition 187. We're just beginning to comprehend some of the political implications of um, racially-based wedge issues, implications from the left, so to speak. Um, We're used to wedge issues coming from the right, that is, splitting the Democratic Party. It's very interesting to watch. I don't think we have a big literature on it yet, what is going on in the Republican Party as a realization of a burgeoning Latino voting population, largely, although not entirely, obviously, framed or oriented towards the Democrats is. And the counter movement in the Republican Party so far has been about values issues, surprise, surprise. This uh, it could, it takes note of the uh, highly Catholic um, orientation of most Latino voters, not all by any means, but also e- evangelical Protestantism shares this, uh, anti-abortion uh, issues, uh, homophobia, etc., are major questions that the Republicans may still be able to use to re, uh, re-slice the wedge, let's call it, although so far, not so good. Um, The policy implications of these shifts, Now, that's that's voting behavior a little bit. And Mary talked more about policy than I will, but I think in terms of education, welfare state issues, urban, suburban, regional relationships, health care, criminal justice, policing, and military practices, even international relations, these transformations, these demographic shifts have major policy implications as well. I'm only going to that list goes on and on. I'm only going to talk about a couple things. Uh, let's say education and labor for start. Uh, the student body in the public age, national public educational system is is moving towards becoming majority minority. Not yet, probably again in the 2020s, sometime. From what I read, I don't know. Mary may know more about that. Um, implications for resegregation already well underway um, for economic mobility and for generalized racial conflict are huge who's going to teach these students what career prospects will they have in many ways if you follow conflict-based models of education of the sociology of education The key question is always the reproduction of the labor force, reproduction of the social division of labor. Obviously, there are are competing academic accounts of that, sociological accounts that uh, emphasize functionalist approaches of integration of the labor force. These are ongoing debates. I don't want to say one side's right, other side's wrong. But um, a situation in which a Increasingly, not quite yet, but increasingly majority minority public school system, not yet, taught with students taught by um, largely majority white teachers um, with career prospects in question and mobility a very significant question how much investment is going to be made, how much. Um, Commitment is the uh, government at all levels making towards the upward mobility of these students. Again, there's more overlap between what Mary is saying and what I'm saying than may at first appear. Okay, that's education. U.S. workforce is becoming darker. I'm not confident about the demographic data here at all, but already there are less and less white workers paying the FICA, People know what FICA is? Social security tax. To support social security payments to white baby boomers like me, when we retire, by the mid-21st century, a majority of US workers will be non-white. Will we see revolts against the welfare state, not from the right, as we've seen in the past, but from the left. People, where people are saying, I'm working to pay off these folks who don't even include me in the political, cultural, economic, labor system, etc." cetera. Where we see an apartheid-type society, like, like South Africa was, and in many ways still is, developing as um, a decreasing white population, which partakes of the, which still controls most of the economic and perhaps political resources, although that's eroding, um, fights to maintain its privilege. You think of movies like Blade Runner or Escape from New York, in which an isolated white elite lives behind, a ga- behind uh, gates and hired private armies, or public armies, to guard them from the hungry and enraged, dark-skinned mobs of the excluded, the marginalized, and the wretched of the Earth. Uh, This resembles, I don't want to overstate that either, which I just did, because that isolated white elite will will not just be an elite by any means. But it resembles in some ways the current French situation. Uh, The various Latin American countries as well, like Brazil or Mexico. Although, I don't want to go too far with those uh, comparisons. South Africa is probably a better comparison there, but even there, the demography would be very different. That sounds pretty bad, right? Really bad. But there are important counter-trends as well. Let me talk about those for a little bit. One counter-trend is a whole complex of issues I call color-blindness and its discontents. Um, In the post-civil rights era, there's been an ambivalent and contradictory trend towards racial reform. This is what made the post-civil rights era possible. It's what made it post, to the extent that we're in a post-civil rights era, that is. Um, What we might call, following Gramsci, racial hegemony. You know, Gramsci said, an Italian Marxist uh, theorist, Antonio Gramsci said that for those in power to stay there, they have to incorporate their opposition. This is not something you can do symbolically. You have to make real concessions. And it's an open process. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Now, Mary's policy recommendations might constitute the next round of incorporative hegemonic concessions that will be necessary for those remain in power, for those who are in power to remain in power. Um, If we look at colorblind racial ideology in this light, we can see how up in the air it is as as a strategy for incorporating opposition. Um, It may absorb a lot of the antagonism that previously existed around race in this country, and it may not. Colorblindness was a prov- provisional attempt to re articulate the demands of a racial opposition, an uh, op- oppositional movement, in a manage- manageable, um, individualist kind of framework that we have called, we've come to call neoconservatism. Colorblindness started out as our thing, whoever, whoever we are. I mean, the famous lines of Dr. King, until my four little children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, etc." That was our demand to get beyond racial segregation, to get beyond the color line. Then um, it was a movement demand. Then it became their thing, a neoconservative thing. Um, but is that the end of it, or can it become our thing again? In university classrooms today, I and mean, at least in my classroom, um, many of my students, especially, but not only, my white students, tell me they don't notice race. That they treat everyone as an individual. A person is just a person to me. You can be black, brown, pur- pu- purple. What purple people all of a sudden. I don't know where all those purple people came from. Um, um, this rejection, their rejection of racism is no doubt genuine in its adoption of colorblindness or non-racialism, but it also tends to ratify the existing inequalities and injustices that descend from the bad old days of segregation. Um, these, their positions reflect the dominant racial ideology of the moment in the United States, of this period in the U.S., in neoconservatism. It's a view that seems more concerned with reverse discrimination than with unchanged black and Latino poverty rates, infant mortality, or heightening, not declining racial stratification. Thus, color blindness both undermines an older, more familiar racial mindset and re-invokes it. I used to argue with my students about this. I would say, you, haven't, you don't see color? Have you had your eyes checked lately? You know." Um, But uh, I came to realize that approach really didn't work. I was denying their their, um, undoubtedly sincere attempts to wrestle with racism. Rather than that, I want to recognize the unresolved... Today, at least having learned my lesson, I want to recognize the unresolved dimensions, the tension we all experience, all of us experience, between colorblindness and color consciousness, race consciousness. I've come to see colorblind racial ideology as an attempted anti-racism, a flawed approach, an impoverished in some ways approach to race and racism, but not one we should dismiss. I want to honor but also expand and deepen that approach by recognizing that sometimes we can be not exactly colorblind, but we can sort of bracket race. While at other times, and much more often this is true of white people, we must recognize, we have to recognize, we have to understand how race still operates and shapes social and political life at both both small-scale and large-scale levels. So I see this uh, recognition as uh, uh, pointing towards a new kind of racial theory, a kind of radical racial pragmatism, um, a um, uh, you know, uh, uh, what pragmatism is about is, uh, a, a, a willingness to kind of check yourself to note how you yourself are operating within this complex, in this case, racial, uh, society. Okay. My final thing, cause I think I'm running out of time. David's giving me the eye. Um, okay. Um, this is still on the counter-trend front. Because, um, because the US state remains a racial state, the efforts of the ruling regime, the Republicans, to adopt the colorblind racial ideology as a way of getting beyond racial conflict and outflanking their opposition, so far at least, have not succeeded fully. They haven't failed fully, but they have far from succeeding fully. Opposition, which calls for redistribution, as Mary has talked about, renewed commitments to egalitarian and e- egalitarianism in the welfare state, and revived anti-racist efforts like affirmative action and even reparations, still has a certain amount of traction. A lot of the anti uh Sensenbrenner demonstrations we see, we've seen now, that, that is to say, that this recent uh mo- Immigrants' rights mobilization has been fairly explicitly racial, I would say. Um, will an increasingly non-white voting base ro- vote against public schools, health care, union rights, immigrant rights, etc.? I don't think so. Again, it's an open question to some extent. And be- beyond that, is the current political regime i.e., the Republicans, the White People's Party, able to maintain its own quote unquote colorblind racial politics. In my view, they are for they're becoming increasingly compelled to violate their own ideology of colorblindness. They have to think racially in order to rule in ways which contradict their explicit post-civil rights ideology. Think what was required to swing Ohio to the Bush column in 2004, for example. Pretty blatant voting rights discrimination against blacks. Think about the current administration's commitment to practices of racial profiling. Not only for reasons of national security, the professed reasons in many cases, but also in carceral policy, prison, policy, policing, uh, welfare state practices, et cetera. Um, the, uh, uh, skip a little here. Think about the paranoia about immigration that is visible on CNN from moment to moment at the moment, um, which, as I've said, is a lot about controlling the political process, voting practices, etc. Think about the commi- commitment of um, the US government the current racial regime to resurgent empire and all the racial implications of imperial rule on a global scale and the fears that were expressed at the time of the Grutter and Gratz cases, the big um, affirmative action cases, by amicus briefs. You got briefs, I don't want to get into this in a big way, but you got briefs from uh, Anthony Zinni and, Wesley Clark, a retired general, saying we really need to keep affirmative action going in the armed forces. Why? Because we're afraid that we will not be able to control our own troops if we don't have a multiracial officer corps. That kind of stuff. So these are uh, ways in which um, the current racial regime is coming into a new level of political contradictions that will open up, I think, lots of space, that is already opening up lots of space for more progressive racial politics in the present than we've been able to see since the heyday of the Civil Rights Movement. So just to conclude and summarize, not only because it's failed to fulfill the promise of racial equality and justice, but also because it defaults, so to speak, to racial rule as a key component of hegemonic. the contemporary U.S. must violate its own racial norms, norms which are themselves a product of post-World War II civil rights and anti-imperial political struggles. And because of this, because people are struggling with issues of race in their own lives, pragmatic, self-reflective action, once again, there's still room to create a more egalitarian, more racially just, more democratic future than the racial despotism, which still, in many ways, characterizes the present. Thanks. <laughs> I got to lose this thing.
0: OK, I just have um, one brief uh, comment to, to go back and forth. Um,
2: how do we? How, how do we do this? Well, thing? maybe we just can so talk we into just this. we just go back?
0: We can go back and forth Act. and talk into this.
3: Okay. All right. Uh, that works. Do so I um, stay up here.
0: Okay. Um, I I think one. I, I agree with a lot of the of the points that that you were making, Howie, and I I think that um, in some ways we're just really uh, looking at this from from different directions. But I I, I wonder if we might disagree about about something which is that when you were talking about um sort of a majority minority and whites versus kind of all these other um races um i think i don't see that any anymore in that same way what i think is that there is a color line and it is being reformed and there is all kinds of struggle around that formation of that racial line. But what I would say is that it is around um, who is black, who is I- included, who is, uh, and, and it's it's an interaction of race and class. Um, but I think that a lot of new immigrants and a lot of, of longer um, uh, um, uh, resident uh, Hispanics and um, Asians and American Indians would fall on the included side, so that the idea of saying whites are like this and the rest of the racial groups are like this, and that that is the cleavage in our society. I think it's not like that anymore.
2: Okay, this is great. This is a, such a long-standing debate, as 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 you know, um, about uh, the the dynamics of the color line. I think the, you know the uh, term itself may be. Um, this is sort of consistent with what you're saying, the term itself, color line, may be effective in some ways and ineffective in others. And Du Du Bois famously wrote, W.E.B. Du Bois famously wrote, the color line belts the world. And on that level, I think it remains an effective characterization of north, south, and now west, east also. That's an old global conflict that's resurgent in Iraq and... Uh, elsewhere, um, but domestically, it, it, I think it's a more open question. It's really open, that's what I would argue, in response. Not quite in refutation to what you're saying and in challenge to what you're saying, but with a certain amount of uncertainty about it. In sociological literature today, there's sort of two big positions. One position is, is uh, kind of arguing that... Um, The other others, that is, the non-white, non-blacks, the Asians, the Latinos in particular, to some extent Native Americans too, are the sort of new um, European immigrants. You know, the new Italians, so to speak, who were racialized for a long time, but maybe now finally, et cetera, et cetera, are jumping ahead of black people and so on. And there's also significantly, a significant debate in the black community about how to deal with the unbelievably uh, strong and su- somewhat surprising immigrants' rights movement that has, you know, just burst on the scene. Uh, so that in LA, for example, there have been anti black anti-immigrant rallies organized by, out of church groups, basically, which ties the Republican Party, but re- but resonating to some extent with black folk who, you know, say it's always somebody else. Jump in the queue on us, et cetera. Uh, on the other hand, Jesse Jackson or other leaders, many other black leaders, are trying to argue for a, uh, you, you know, a black-brown uni- united front. And black-brown conflict is a big theme in itself. Um, so, uh, you know, in response, I would tend to say that it's open. It's an open question. I mean, there's a lot. There's mobility. Necessary mobility, that is for social stability, it's necessary that people of color, at least people of uh, the upper strata, you know, middle class black people, let's say, as much as middle class Latinos and others, have access to power, have access to mobility, and that kind of thing. The biggest worry for a long time in the literature and in U.S. racial policy has been the alienation of the black middle class. What happens then? E. Franklin Frazier wrote about this in the 1950s. But um, uh, you know, if it's true that, that uh, Latinos are, et al. are going to um, um, become the new you know, European ethnics or something like that, then it's definitely also the case that racism is gonna take a very different form in the United States than it has thus far.
4: somehow there are processes in the society by which they've been converted to white, which I don't think you take into account at all. So now we even have a literature that talks about how Jews became white, how Italians became white, how mm-hmm. Irish became white. What about those processes?
2: What about those Chinese that you... Hmm? What about the Chinese? Did they become white? I haven't seen... A lot of, I've seen these books. I haven't seen them, uh-huh. but I wouldn't be
0: surprised. Well, there is that book I mean, called... By the way, I'll come back to this.
4: Another issue going on there—the Asians, generally non-white—but what are the processes? Have you given any thought to how it is if these
0: groups, which were defined as non-white, suddenly became white? On, on the backs of African Americans is, I think, the shorthand version of it. There's a lot of other processes that happened. There was it helped, and I think one of the points I was trying to make is that the the socioeconomic. Um, uh... mobility of the twentieth century played a huge role in that and if you had if you had the kind of uh... prospects for unskilled uneducated people for italian americans that we have right now when they came um, uh, you might have had a very different kind of of outcome in terms of of that racialization process um, but but i i do think that, uh, and, and this is why i was making an argument that that really African-Americans are a very different case than the other groups we talk about as minority is that for the other groups, African-Americans are a way to um, uh, show someone else being excluded and so that they can be included.
2: Okay, I don't want to spend a it, but lots of people have their hands up. Um, traditionally, I mean, in the, certainly in the 20th century, the color line basically ran around Europe um, and it, it was Europe and everybody else. It, you know, the, the, these are fundamentally, I think, political matters that, that are open in ways that we don't recognize how open they are in lots and lots of ways. I mean, the U.S. has always racialized internally its external conflicts. What happens when the, great, the new Cold War emerges as U.S. v. China at that point, there's a, a certain kind of stigma against the Chinese is going to, re- may, I shouldn't say is going to, may uh, reappear in the way that it has uh, it appeared now as Islamophobia and previ- previously was anti-Japanese, etc., etc. These are all open, much more open questions. Then uh, we recognize, and it, you know, I think it's, it, it's the other key thing to recognize is where is the low-paid labor going to come from? So, as the extent that that labor is low-paid labor, and has to be kept that way for corporate survival and so on and so forth, and profit margins—forgive my, you know, crude Marxism—then. Uh, that that will also generate tremendous racialization pressures for non-white, non-black people.
0: right um, uh, on your first point about American Indians you're right I was making the distinction between immigrants and and um, African Americans and I would agree with you that there's very special legal and, and national policy at, at, and the same kinds of discrimination so so I'm with you on that on the second question about um, it, about Mexican Americans um, uh, there is discrimination uh, against Mexican Americans in the labor market. Um, they are concentrated in, in low wage labor. I do think that some of the levels of assimilation and um, incorporation of Mexican Americans are hidden both from the general public and from the social scientist because of. Um, uh... uh... identity changes because of high intermarriage rates because of kind of absorption of mexican-americans into um, uh, a sort of wider um, uh... Wor- wider world um, but uh... and and i would say that you know some of the segregation is is a result of the really high immigration that we're having as well as the issues around being um, low low-wage low labor and so i guess i would i guess i think that the level of um, uh... racial discrimination um, is not at the same order as the level of economic problems and discrimination that mexican-americans had and so i would say that some policies designed around social mobility and and help for low-wage work, workers would do a lot towards that um, that uh, discrimination as as well as um, uh, anti-discrimination laws, but that you don't need the same kinds of social policies that you would need uh, for uh, American blacks and for American Indians.
3: Mm -hmm. which I would actually really, I'm not sure that this is really the case, and also I think many uh, cases, if you look at immigrants today, non-white immigrants to the U.S. or also non-white immigrants in European countries, uh, it's not just about economic well-being, it's also about cultural rights, it is about a political voice, Mm -hmm. Yeah. whole notion of urban citizenship as opposed to a
0: national citizenship. And I wonder how 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 this would sort of affect your thinking of the policies forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um uh quickly, um uh <laughs> uh I think that um it's really in thinking about European policies versus American policies that that I've been thinking less uh less positively towards uh programs that, that emphasize cultural rights. Um, I do think if you look at the history of, I, I, first of all, there's a bedrock since the Civil Rights Movement that I'm assuming, right, that we're not going to dismantle, which is um, uh, the the protection against um, uh, uh, discrimination, the recourse to be able to um, uh, challenge any kind of um, uh Unequal treatment, um, which you don't necessarily have in, in in some of the European countries that that I've looked at for immigrants, but the question of whether or not you you single out immigrants for particular cultural rights, I think, can backfire actually. And I think that one of the reasons why Americans are so positive about immigration is because we haven't done that in, in a lot of ways, and we we really have incorporated immigrants very quickly into the labor market. And I think that that that's a very A big difference from what happens in in Europe in which immigrants are not brought into the labor market in the same kinds of of ways, they're protected in welfare state kinds of ways, and in some ways in places like Germany are really prevented from entering the labor market. And I think that in the U.S. we have a really positive view towards immigrants in general. The more contact you have with immigrants, the higher Americans, uh, attitudes are towards immigrants. Um, and I think that, that um, uh, in the long run that cultural integration will happen. It won't happen in the first generation. Um, and we shouldn't have draconian policies to stamp out people's um, cultural uh, behaviors. But it will happen naturally as, a, as, uh, um, as the, the mainstream changes and as immigrants change over time if there is a uh, equal place for people and if there is the payoff for people immigrating and people immigrate to make a better life for themselves and their children. If we give that to them they're going to be um, uh, incorporated into the society. So I don't think we need to have special language rights or special um, uh, uh, cultural organizations uh, to, to shore up people. I think we need to let people have that but we need to to, to build a, a um, Build a platform in which they will have what they immigrated for.
2: Real quickly, uh, we for who's we is a big question. Who, what we need to do and who we are. Remember, this is the first moment in Amer- in North American U.S. history in which white people are not the are moving towards a situation where they are not we anymore. That's the first thing. Second thing is that. Um, Uh, I don't know if we would disagree, if we could talk this out, but I I definitely don't think we have a bedrock set of accomplishments that come out of the Civil Rights Movement. We have a small number of accomplishments that definitely took the, uh, the most jagged edge off of discrimination but did not basically obviate overall policies, overall situations of pervasive discrimination in every sphere of uh, U.S. social life, including labor, housing, education, you name it, healthcare, consumer rights, everything. A consumer, you know, equality, everything. So it's, it's, the civil rights movement's goals were not fulfilled and have basically been to, tracked on a good deal as a result of our ability to have this colorblind ideology stuff, okay? And then as a, you know, as a, As a a final question, I don't think we can really talk about, again, I say this with the greatest love and respect, we we, we cannot talk about there's economic discrimination and racial discrimination when it's the same people you're dealing with. Okay, I'm on the receiving end of that. Is it racial or is it economic? Gee, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to do a study. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. It's going to be articulated racially because this is a highly racist society and it ain't going to change that fast, if ever.
0: Well, uh, Howie and I might disagree, but the Census Bureau has decreed that people from the Middle East are white, and so they're in all the statistics for white. Um, and um, uh, the, the, in general, the people who have come from the Middle East to the United States are very different in their socioeconomic backgrounds and educational backgrounds in, um, uh, than the ones who have gone to Europe. So they're very different populations to compare, although there's been a change in the in the demographics of recent immigrants, um, but, uh, but, but to answer your question, they disappear statistically into the white category.
2: Just very quickly, radical pragmatism. Who the census says is a race may have lots and lots of important consequences, but it does not determine who is a race. I mean, this is, if Latinos aren't a race, I'm sorry. Of course, there's lots of black Latinos and white Latinos and blonde and so on, but it's a, a social construct. And therefore, the recognition that comes from the lived experience it, it is determining, not what the Census Bureau said. Same thing with uh, you know Islamophobia. I have graduate students now working on Islamophobia. The data that they're coming up with, the ethnographic data that they're coming up with, is amazing how much hostility there is, how much antagonism there is in the United States, and of course not just the United States, to People, We don't even know what to call them. Shall we call them Middle Eastern Americans? What does that do for, you know, Persians, and so on and so forth, or South Asians? But uh, a new, it's really questionable whether there's a new pan-ethnic category, and that is to say a new racial category getting formed. Call it Middle Eastern Americans for right now. Um, This kind of goes back to what this gentleman was saying before. Um, you can, sure, racial categories get destroyed. The Jews aren't a race. The Irish aren't a race. But new categories get created, too. That's what racial formation is about.
1: We have time for one last very quick question. I <laughs>
2: Um, I guess that's not me, too. Well, uh, you know, the last thing I said, but also you you should have come to my global talk. (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, I mean, without question, um, we can't think about any of these phenomena. We could never really think about race in the United States effectively without thinking about race as a global phenomenon. The slave trade, et cetera, too, was not just some kind of domestic thing. It was a you know a hemispheric Atlantic basin thing, et cetera, et cetera. Going back to what, whatever we want. Or indigenous issues, Native American issues, that's not a, a US thing. Uh, but uh when we look at the world today and we see it's kind of a global triage in place from the people on top, from the from the ruling regime in Washington mainly. And it. It basically ignores, it basically writes off Africa. Africa doesn't count. It's too poor, we can dominate it. Don't worry about it. Let them fight each other. It, uh, it's ignoring the, U- the Latin America, which, you know, of course, they're freaked out about the Re- Revolución Bolivariana and so on and so forth. But we don't have time. That's our sw- sphere of influence. We'll deal with them later. Uh, what What's going on is the... Uh, the military struggle with insurgent Islam and the economic struggle with the East. So that's the global racial picture. All four of those categories really count, and they count domestically, some in big ways already, like Islamophobia I'm talking about, but some in, you know, portentous ways, possibly towards the future. That's how we have to think about race today, globally and locally. (laughs)
5: <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>, we <well,
6: that. laughs> <laughs> have to quick. Uh, I, I hope your audience appreciates what you offered them about the demographics of these issues and also the policy dimensions. But unless I wasn't hearing well, I missed very much discussion about attitudes and values, especially if they can be tapped by public opinion research. And I wonder is the picture that's given by the more or less, uh, or envision you have approached the problem. Would that bear up, or would it have to be reinterpreted in the light of the attitude and value studies? That has two dimensions. One is the uh, orientation of the majority towards the minority and the privilege towards the underprivileged. But particularly, what is the view of the nominally underprivileged with regard to their situation, the fairness of the framework within which they operate, the opportunities where they, they're going from? It seems to me that that it's possible that. Those two things are not well aligned, and that has very different implications for both uh, uh, predicting policy and predicting social action. So I invite you to elaborate on that a little bit.
0: I'll I'll start. Uh, Did everyone hear the question? Um, The question was that we didn't talk about attitudes and values, both of the... Um, uh, the majority um, and the the minority and uh, looking at each other uh, from both perspectives and and what um, what would that how would that adding that complicate or change the stories that we 're telling and I actually think the attitudinal um, and value data would um, would support some of the arguments that i 'm making about uh, first of all openness of whites. Uh, uh... towards asians and latinos um, uh, in, in ways that they are not open towards african-americans um, so that in turn and if you look at sort of uh, questions about who who you would um, uh... be willing to live with send your kids to school with et cetera there's just a very sharp difference between the expressed attitudes in in surveys of whites towards um, uh... blacks as opposed to other groups It's just much more negative um, you know, all of them have changed over the last few decades in a positive way, but, um, uh, and if you look at uh, how the group, uh, the minority groups themselves look at each other, that's a really interesting question. Larry Bobo has looked at, at this in, in the multi-city survey, and um, uh, one of the things about becoming an American is that you learn American racial um, uh, uh, racism and you learn American racial hierarchy extremely quickly. Um, and so what, what you find is that immigrants coming in begin to um, uh, uh, adopt American racial um, attitudes as well.
2: We've got to end, but we're really uh, inclined to see racism as anti-black racism. We're not wrong in that, but we're mired in the past to some extent by that as well. Your question is really not about that. It's the like adi- attitudes from below. And again, if we rethink race as this ongoing project, set of projects, this complex process by which um, not only social structure but also identity are being made and remade at the micro level and the macro level constantly. That's sort of the True description of my life works, so I hope that that's some significance. I mean, then, then, uh, you know, we we see how open that stuff really is. How you know, the the current villain can become a hero, and vice versa as well. The model. I, I I warn you all on the new yellow peril, the uh, the the. Um, the, uh, you know, the current model minority, the Chinese, who are doing so well in Mary's data, may really turn out to be the new, you know, uh, red menace. Maybe not red in the old sense, maybe in a new sense, you know, as the rivalry, the global rivalry, uh, heats up between the U.S. and China. That's just one example of many that can be offered. Well, thank you. Um... Thanks for your question. Very oh, nice and I
0: The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.